Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I am Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the Old Fashioned Radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is Amy Stepanovich. Uh, she's the executive director of Silicon Flatirons, a center on technology and law at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, the question we're going to be exploring together is who cares about privacy? Who really cares about privacy? Um, this is something I've been kind of puzzling with myself a bit. Um, I can't tell if I really care about privacy. I'm the kind of person who seems like I would. I, I run Linux on my computer and use a password, password manager and send encrypted email and use the encrypted chat app signal for text messages and encrypt my hard drive. I have painstakingly de-Googleified my life um, uh, every way I can, which is not nearly enough. It, it's become like a game, though, something that, uh, you know, when I'm board, I kind of tried to figure out, okay, what's one other thing I can do to, um, uh, uh, to, to, to disentangle myself. But there are also still a trillion ways in which I'm exposed as anyone else. Um, and I don't care. I, I can't care. I can't possibly allow myself to care because it would be crippling if I did care too much, um, or, uh, even maybe enough. Um, most people, probably don't do all this stuff. And I'm actually not sure whether they're any worse off um, because we so rarely see the effects um, of the data about us swirling around. Um, targeted ads, of course, are just the tip of the iceberg. You know, I was uh, recently in China and uh, got to experience uh, a, a world in which the kind of privacy norms and expectations are very different. And and you realize there where, you know, the um, uh, driving down the street, lights are flashing all the time as cameras are, are capturing driver's images, um, where facial recognition can be used, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a train ticket. Um, where you're 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 just much more confronted with the power of these technologies in ways that um, that that we in the United States often don't experience day to day in public spaces. Um, uh, that doesn't mean the same technologies aren't there. Um, the 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 present and future uh, of these questions are full of trade offs. Uh, would you hand over, have you handed over your DNA to know more about your family history? Have your family members and descendants and unborn descendants who share that some of that DNA consented to that? Uh, would you hand over your browsing data in exchange for free internet service? What kind of terms uh, would make this okay? Terms of service, as we often hear. While privacy issues often get a lot of attention and discussion in the news, you know, um, lately the New York Times has been uh, uh, hashing through article after article about about privacy. Uh, this kind of alarmism rarely seems to change behavior. Um, for instance, a lot of people who left Facebook after the Cambridge Analytica scandal often just went to Facebook-owned Instagram. Um, I, I need help understanding this issue as well as understanding myself in the midst of it. Thus, I'm so glad to have Amy Stepanovich uh, here to help us uh, uh, think through 
uh, 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 who really cares about privacy. Again, she's executive director of Silicon Flatirons, a center on technology and law at the University of Colorado Boulder. Before that, she was a U.S. policy manager, manager and global policy counsel at Access Now in Washington, D.C., and, and then before that, director of the Domestic Surveillance Project at the Electronic Privacy Information Center. So she really knows uh, what she's talking about around these issues, and she's testified before several national governments uh, as well. In her new role at Silicon Flatiron, she's convening critical discussions on the future of tech policy. This is a really important uh, center, not just regionally, but uh, but nationally and internationally, a place where some really critical um, discussions about uh, uh, tech policy uh, uh, nationally have been framed and, and developed. So uh, it's a it's a really it's really a, a gift to have uh, Amy there. Um, Amy, welcome to Looks Like New. Thanks, Nathan. I appreciate you having me here. Well, let's start out with what privacy means to you personally. I mean, you've spent so much of your career exploring these questions around privacy and surveillance. Um, what made it matter to you? To me, privacy is a sense of knowledge about where my information is and who knows what about me. And to an extent, being able to control how long that information lasts in a database, where it goes, um, who it's sold or given away to, and how the pieces of the puzzle about me go to other people. And those other people could be friends, relatives, neighbors, as well as huge multi-billion dollar corporations and everything in between. And I think today we're confronted through technology a lot more with that latter category. Um, we're actually kind of, I think, in many ways, separating ourselves off from the former. Mm -hmm. Now, are there, is there an experience for you that kind of made it matter, you know, kind of direct um, uh, either to you or to somebody else, you know, where you've seen um, the stakes? I mean, that's often a question for me. What are the stakes? I think they're different for every single human. Um, and I don't know if I can point to a single experience. I almost have any more an experience every single day. Um, and I don't, you know, privacy is not about not using tools or technologies. It's more about, um, to me, knowing what your exposure is. So, for example, um, and many privacy advocates, I think, in, in the country and around the world would criticize me for this, but I have an Amazon voice device in my home. I have it in a very specific room, kind of off to the side where I, I control what goes into it a little bit more than most people. Um, but I have one. And yesterday it sent me an alert saying, we think based on all of your buying habits that you might want to buy this product. I had a moment where I'm like, I don't know. Like, I know when I want to buy something. Um, and I'm feeling this weird peer pressure now from a machine to order something I don't need at the moment. And that would that was a moment. That was a very recent one. And I think in little ways, we all experience pieces of the privacy puzzle every single day. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, you point to this kind of dynamic of, of, of different strategies and also different kind of judginess uh, factors, right? Where, you know, there, there are those who say that the you know the response to this uncertainty and this and this uh, kind of power imbalance is uh, renounce everything. You know, uh, uh, don't use the stuff at all. Uh, uh, others say no, enter into the stuff and uh, 
appreciate the benefits and that actually makes these questions matter even more. Yeah. And I, I definitely fall somewhere in between. Um, we should be able to use products. Our friends are on products, these products, um, these services. We want to connect. They have provided benefits to individuals. Um, and in certain communities, those benefits are quite significant. And to cut yourself off from them is to cut yourself off from the community that maybe has made you feel like you're you're part of something for the first time in your life. And I don't think we should have to do that. What I do think is that people should be empowered to make decisions about what being part of those communities means for their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not at the moment. And people talk a lot about, do you read the terms of service? There's a bit, there's lots of quotes because they're so long, they're so wonky, um, they're super, like, do you understand them? And I come at it from a different direction. I don't, I tell people not to read the terms of service, not because they're long and wonky, but because they don't tell you anything. Right, right. And if you're not going to get any benefit out of reading this, you know, document that takes 15 minutes out of your life for every single service that you use, why should you do it? But we should have that information. We should have it in a format that doesn't take 15 minutes to access and that allows us to make quick decisions and feel empowered about what we're doing. Yeah. And that, and I think that brings us to the, you know, the policy issues that we'll get to um, a little bit later, um, where, you know, wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where you could not have to read all this stuff because you just know that you're there's a framework of protection around you. Mm -hmm. um, but, but around the around the the challenges, you know, I, w one thing that struck me, um, the other day I was reading the, um, uh, the crisis, you know, the NAACP magazine, and, um, it's really struck. There were two passages about, um, about surveillance and, and, and privacy that, that stood out to me and were a reminder of how, um, often in U S history, it's been marginalized communities who experience some of these um, pressures most, you know, we, we have often, um, you know, I'm uh, been guilty of this. Like we have in, in our minds often the image of Edward Snowden as kind of the subject of surveillance, right? Mm -hmm. The white guy who, who's like the techie and the hacker and whatever. And this is the person who's afraid when in fact, you know, you, uh, there was one passage in the, in the magazine of a, a former department of Homeland security worker who had moved to, um, to Africa and to, to West Africa. Mm -hmm. And one of the things she said about why she did it was, I just, I, I just, I'm so glad to live in a place where there aren't cameras everywhere. You know, and this is somebody who worked for that, you know, for that mm -hmm. apparatus, you know, who knows what is in there, I imagine. Um, and so that was, you know, and the article is not about that. It was just something that was kind of quoted offhand. And then another thing was in the list in the back of resolutions that they'd recently adopted, the NAACP, um, had adopted a resolution against the use of blockchain based identity systems. Um, this was really striking to me because, you know, I, I've been involved in that world. We've talked about it on this show, mm -hmm. but it's not something, you know, it's not a concern that's very mainstream Yet it's something that, you know, this organization is, you know, is focused on. I think that's fascinating. Um, I mean, coming from D.C., you find out very quickly. The people who talk about and, you know, privacy and surveillance, privacy vis-a-vis -vis companies and privacy vis-a-vis -vis the government are, are slightly different areas, but they frequently overlap in the harms and the, the reasons people care and the people who talk about them, the people you see on panels in front of Congress, 
are overwhelmingly very wealthy, from very wealthy backgrounds, white um, or white passing men um, who don't experience those same harms in the same way and may not even be able to wrap their heads around what other communities face on a daily basis. Um, And I think that's starting to change. We're seeing shifts people are starting to take into consideration and not only take into consideration, but bring in the voices from these other communities, because it's not enough to just say that they're out there. You have to hear from them and hear these um, issues in their own words and what matters to them and how to solve it. It's different solutions, potentially. Um, But it's not really happening fast enough. And Cameras are one issue, are a big issue for that. You you hear frequently in the privacy world, and many of the listeners are probably have been thinking this throughout this whole segment so far. I have nothing to hide, um, so I I care less about privacy. Um, first of all, I think that's just totally incredibly not true. Everybody has something to hide, um, even if it's just your credit card information from people who might want to act as you and buy very expensive things. Um, but it's also not the right approach to privacy. Um, If the majority populations are willing to give up their privacy, they're actually impacting um, these more marginalized communities and creating bigger threats for them. And so privacy, like a lot of things, is actually maybe we should be approaching it more as a public good, something we have to care about for the good of society, not necessarily the good of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really helpful reformulation, right? Just as protection might be something that we need to do together with policy, with other sorts of infrastructure, um, that that actually the the goal is something that benefits us all, that actually my ability to, or your ability to, to protect your own data might actually affect somebody who you don't even know. And you're you know, ability to live in a healthy society depends on strangers' ability to have privacy. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Now, today, you know, especially with your experience in working on policy, you know, what do you see as, you know, what is your mental image of the threat model right now? Like, wh- wh- what is the what is the biggest danger uh, that people should, you know, and that we not just as individuals, but as mm-hmm. a society should be concerned about? Um, So I work a lot in the world of analogies. I'm going to use one here. Uh, For a long time, over the last 10 years, major companies were not investing, and we knew this, um, properly in cybersecurity. And many of them thought they could get by on that, um, either because there were so many other targets out there, they would never be targeted, or they didn't see the value in putting forth this investment in something that they thought was very unlikely to happen. And that eventually started to change because there were so many security incidents. There was almost one major um, data breach every single day for a, for a while still, really, um, that companies had to start rethinking that formulation. And I think on privacy, we're still in that first period. People don't see the violations yet. They don't mm-hmm. see how they could be impacted Um, even though it could be happening every day. Um, And we're starting to see that. We saw with Cambridge Analytica the way um, massive data collection could lead to manipulation at a level we might not even be aware of um, and have impacts not only in personal lives and individual communities, 
but on national political scales, which are which are quite huge. Um, over the holidays and at the end of 2019, we saw uh, that Amazon cameras were being accessed by third parties, mostly malicious actors. Um, these are the the Nest cameras mm-hmm. to look into people's houses, sometimes over very long periods of time. And these people had no idea that strangers were watching what they did, what their children did. Um, Children frequently um, solidify privacy concerns in a way that that maybe we don't feel about ourselves. And this definitely was that issue. And I think we're going to continue to see this over time. The introduction of tools, um, artificial intelligence generated analysis that can put pieces of the puzzle about our lives together for people um, from very small amounts of information are going, that's going to start having an impact on how we interact with society. Um, and it's not going to, it will be those small individual questions, but we're going to see societal shifts from that. Something I like talking about um, that I really, it's, it's, I'm starting to wrap my head around this. Um, if you use Gmail, you know that Gmail likes to suggest how to end your sentences for you. Um, and if you want to end your sentence like they suggest, you just hit a key and it's there and you don't have to type out all those letters and people might start doing that. It's much easier. And that's probably trained on either your individual data or data from society. And that might be the way that you could end a sentence, but it also takes away your thinking Mm -hmm. about how you might end it in a different way this time. And I feel like that's forcing us all into this middle average place. Do it the way you've always done it. Don't think ahead. Stay in the in this small range of acceptable behavior that we've produced for you. And it's when we push the borders of that that we have the innovative thinking that moves society forward. Mm-hmm. Are we lose are we losing that forward progress because tools are making our lives easier? I think it's an interesting question. I haven't thought all the way through it yet, but it's ripe for somebody to dig into it. Well, it goes so far back. I mean, it's it it reminds me of of the you know Platonic dialogue where Socrates tells the story of of uh, the the Egyptian god who invented writing and and what a tragedy because um, because people lost their memories as a result. You know, which many of us uh, know from the experience. Those of us who lived through the introduction of smartphones, you know, have probably experienced the passage from the world in which we knew phone numbers to the world in which we no longer were able to even, <laughs> you know, it took me two years to memorize my wife's phone number, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we, we realize what this does to ourselves, but, and, and, you know, you're pointing to the ways in which it's, it's hard to put your finger on what's going on because of the scale, because you know something like Cambridge Analytica. Does any one person experience Cambridge Analytica? Um, I don't know. Maybe in some micro-targeted ad they saw somewhere, but socially in the aggregate, we experienced it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and and it's hard to you know make that um, that connection sometimes. Um, now, before we get into you know the the details of public policy, how do you think about the balance between uh, of responsibility uh, between uh, what individuals or even companies are responsible for and what um, policy should should mm-hmm. be responsible for around these questions? 
This has been an area where my own beliefs have evolved greatly over time. I will say when I first entered the privacy space and I worked much more heavily on the government surveillance area, um, it, you know, it was a different internet. Um, technology has moved fast and I really thought we could make these decisions ourselves. We could choose to not use Facebook if we don't like Facebook's policies. And maybe even back then there were choices. There were alternatives that maybe don't exist anymore. Um, but I, I've learned through talking with people, not only here in the U.S., but my job at Access Now was very international, and I got to speak to these communities around the world about the degree of choice maybe people don't have. Um, and so I think that we need to have a common level of protection when it comes to what data can be collected and why, how it can be shared, how people need to be informed, um, either for their own benefit, if they're interested, or for the benefit of organizations who are out there to be interested for them, to serve their interest, and who can dig into some of these details that take a lot of effort and time that people don't have in their daily lives. Um and then once you have a common set of rights um, and practices that companies all need to follow, people have the option to exercise those rights or to not. Um, they can be safe knowing or comfortable knowing that there are these limited um, practices that companies can engage in, that they have to be transparent, that they um, cannot just wholly collect every single piece of data about a person that that person um, might generate within their day. Uh, and then if you want to say, I want to leave a service and delete all my information on this service, I just don't want to use it anymore, that's given to you. You don't have that today. So um, a couple days ago when there was a big report about how much data is being mined and, and sold by dating apps and dating companies... Mm -hmm. Um, the headline was, anybody using these apps should be worried and maybe you should stop using it. But that doesn't solve the problem because your data is there and you have no right to ask them to delete it. Europeans have that right and Californians now have that right. Um, but the rest of us in the country don't. And so we don't have we're not empowered to really react to these stories in any meaningful way. Yeah. Well, you know, it reminds me of the. Um, there's a, you know, the title of this show looks like new comes from, uh, a poet, uh, philosopher, Peter Morin, uh, uh, and he has another, another phrase, uh, where he talk, talks about uh, a world in which it's easier to be good, you know, and, and, you know, it sort of sounds like that's what you're, what you're getting at, you know, a world in which, mm -hmm. yes, there's choice, but the, 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 the kind of baseline is raised a bit so that people don't have to try quite so hard to, you know, and companies mm -hmm. don't have to uh, have quite so many temptations to be bad, right? You know, and I, I don't know if you or your listeners watched The Good Place on TV, but uh, one of the seasons talked quite a bit about, can we even be good? Like in the society when you used to buy your mother flowers and you would get them from the local garden and be able to hand them to her and you did a good thing. Now those flowers are being... There's pesticides involved. They're being shipped from halfway around the world, and that creates environmental cost. Um, there's probably child labor involved, or there might be. And it has all of these layers to it that you never see. You think you're doing a really nice thing. 
And there's this whole like other side of the iceberg that you can't see. I think privacy is a lot like that. We see a little bit of it, but all of this stuff is happening that only we, we don't see, we can't see. It's made purposefully um, invisible to the normal person. And if you spent your life, in your introduction, you talked about if you spent your life caring about that, you could easily 24 hours a day only do privacy and nobody has time for that. You're listening to Looks Like New. We're speaking with Amy Stepanovich uh, about uh, privacy. Stick with us and we'll be back. Mark your calendar for February 6th and join KGNU and the FLOWS program at Boulder's University of Colorado Environmental Center to hear from climate change leaders. FLOWS will lead a conversation about engaging new voices in climate work. They will discuss efforts to make real change on an individual and community level with diverse students and low-income residents. This event is free and open to the community and made possible by the Boulder County Resource Zero Waste Funding Program. Refreshments will be provided. Register today at KGNU.org. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Amy Stepanovich, who's the executive director of Silicon Flatirons, a center on technology and law at the University of Colorado Boulder. Now, a- Amy, you're, you've spent your career uh, working in the policy space, working uh, often in Washington, D.C., um, working with people who are drafting and advocating for uh, uh, policies around technology. Um, do you have a wish list? What, you know, what, what's, uh, 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 what would you uh, like to see prioritized in how governments approach questions about privacy, surveillance, and, and mm-hmm. technology? Mm-hmm. Uh, a few, I mean, if you ask me about my wish list for laws, I think there are quite a few. Um, we need to be handling the privacy issue at a national level in the U.S. Um, that doesn't stop state innovation in the legal area, but that provides a common level of protection. Um, we need to be looking at digital security, computer security. Right now, um, there are big questions about if companies can even protect your information adequately, mm. um, with the president himself questioning if that should be um, allowed. And I think we need to settle that issue because as more of our information comes online, it's going to become critical that we have as much security as possible for it. Um, and then I think from a from a more meta level, we need to get more perspectives into D.C. on these issues, and we need to come to com- common understandings. Um, the tech community needs to learn how to speak better policy. The policy community needs to learn how to speak better tech, um, the legal community. And 
to speak to each other respectfully. We really like digging in on acronyms and really um, intense, wonky language. We're not speaking to the normal person or really even to each other. Um, In fact, frequently, I think we're speaking to about five other people who understand the issue well enough to understand us. Well, I think that's a really interesting question. It it kind of reminds me, you know, there's a kind of, um, you know, okay boomer culture about this stuff, you know, an immediate dismissal. Um, I, I think, for instance, of the the kind of what felt to me like the tech industry's response to the congressional hearings with Mark Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. which, you know, the response was, oh, look at these dumb old guys, um, you know, asking these silly questions of, you know, of the boy genius. Right. Um, and 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 there's this kind of general, you know, I'm curious about whether you think, uh, you know, government is kind of structurally equipped and even whether the people in there, whether there are people in there who are capable of understanding these questions. And, and, you know, when I saw that response, I was thinking about, um, something that, uh, in the recent book, uh, the rise of surveillance capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, something that she emphasizes is that back in the nineties, mm-hmm. you know, in the Clinton administration, they were talking about outlawing cookies, you know, which mm-hmm. would have kind of undermined the whole surveillance, you know, it's the technology that enables Facebook to follow you around the web. Um, so, so, you know, when I hear that claim that, you know, I'm, I'm curious on your perspective, actually working with these people, mm-hmm. you know, it, it are, is there is there a kind of is government really in a position to um, anticipate and 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 react to these kinds of crises or or do we need to look elsewhere? And so just one thing, because I think you make an important point of cookies, it does enable tracking, but it also enables companies, when you click that remember me on this browser, you set your settings, it enables these things that people love as well. And so there's the good and the bad that could come with these regulations. And frequently, we only think about the one side. Um, I think the Zuckerberg hearings are a really good approach to this because they were, you know, Facebook falls in this weird place where they can say, we don't sell your data we only sell the ability to target you based on such minute details that somebody could probably advertise to a single person based on just checking boxes um, for, I think one example I heard was women over 65 in North Dakota who ride motorcycles. There might not be a huge population of people who are targeted by those advertisements. Um, but in subsequent hearings, you know, you saw Facebook able to kind of fine-tune and respond within that weird distinction in a way that might have misled some members of Congress. And then in subsequent hearings, you saw members getting more and more sophisticated about the questions they asked, about the ways they engaged. Um, Some of that was, I mean, these are not dumb people, overwhelmingly. Sometimes we see them on the news and they're speaking in sound bites and it's easy to disregard them, but they are overwhelmingly incredibly intelligent individuals. Um, who have a lot of priorities. And so what are they digging into and really spending time on? And that gets that helps a little bit. There are also really amazing programs like Tech Congress that are putting technologists into the offices of members of Congress, which really helps them understand these issues in a meaningful way. And we're, we should all be happy those programs exist because we don't want to see legislation that outright kills technology. We do want to see it um, to empower individuals. And that's a really fine line to walk. Um, people like to see that questions are easy answers, 
and they're not frequently. Um, you see it in the speech area a lot. One person's free speech is another person's f- million rape threats a day on Twitter. And those are serious things that we should be talking about. You don't just get rid of all of those threats by saying, but free speech. It's it's just not a good response. Um, but we need to understand the tech to come to real solutions for that. Now, in addition to you know the tech, I think it's also you know sometimes we forget that there are features of the law that are framing our experience. You know, as someone who's who's worked in this in this space, you know, is there a um, you know how much does current uh, uh, law affect um, our experience of privacy and and uh, you know digital services currently? Um, is there a for instance, a, a favorite law in the books that um, that nobody seems to know about, but it, you know everybody should. Oh my goodness, there's so many. That's such a for somebody who works in policy. That's such a hard question. Um, you know, it's inter- there are so many privacy. The U.S. takes if you're a policy if you're a privacy person, you know, U.S. takes a sectoral approach to privacy, meaning we have some privacy laws that only influence certain types of data, health data with HIPAA. Everybody who's been to a doctor has signed a HIPAA notice um, at some point in their lives. Um, Financial privacy, education privacy. Um, And it's interesting that we put value in those areas. I think one of my favorite privacy laws, um, favorite laws, really, it's not because I think the law is overwhelmingly good. It's actually quite outdated. But I love the reason we have it. The Video Privacy Protection Act, the VPPA, which nobody's probably heard of unless you work in privacy, protects your video rental history. Um, Back in the days of Blockbuster and when you rented videos. And the reason for that is there was a very prominent um, Supreme Court nominee whose video rental history was released. And there were perhaps a few titles that he didn't want people to know about. And so now we have a law that protects that because the lawmakers and the policymakers were able to see themselves being impacted and that, that caused that to be passed. Yeah. That's, it's so interesting. It's, um, you know, there's so many things that are commonplace in the digital environment that were outlawed in other, like, I mean, for instance, what if that uh, video rental law just simply applied to browsing history, right? Mm -hmm. There's no, reason or even like Netflix history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, whatever it is. Uh, it's so interesting that, um, you know, practices around, um, uh, around, uh, uh, phone calls or, um, you know, from companies or, or, um, uh, the use of mail solicitations, the kinds of things that mm-hmm. companies can absorb online, um, are unthinkable, offline. You know, if, if, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you were being tracked in the way that you are online, you know, in, when you're walking through a mall or something like that, it, it, it's, um, uh, it, you know, it, it, that, that sectoral limit is, is, uh, really striking in it. And you think of something like taxis too. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a case where kind of because Uber is on an app, it has managed to create this legal gray area um, where the regulations that apply to essentially similar services mm-hmm. don't apply to them, um, and and in a lot of ways, it seems like that's a big part of this of the story of you know our legal relationship to technologies. Technology creates these these spaces of ambiguity. Mm-hmm. We say frequently, 
you shouldn't regulate tech. You shouldn't regulate AI. Right. You shouldn't regulate driverless cars. You should regulate the interests, um, the public interests that are being implicated by those technologies in a tech-neutral way. Right. So if you're going to regulate AI, maybe it's maybe it's not AI you're looking at. Maybe it's the massive data collection that are fueling these AI tools. And that gets back to privacy concerns, and that gets back to some, what we've been talking about forever. So it's not new. It's just a repackaging, maybe... Um, highlighting issues that have been around for a long time in a way that people can feel. Absolutely. You know, I, th- I think that's a really important insight. And, you know, we saw this, for instance, in the in the cryptocurrency world, you know, when when there was the big bubble with, you know, the Ethereum and ICOs, all these, all these uh, 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 projects were doing uh, uh, initial coin offerings, selling these virtual coins and so forth. And you had basically a rehearsal of the 1929, you know, stock market boom and crash, right? And, and suddenly people remembered why these these rules are in place, and mm-hmm. and also regulars regulators started acting, remembering that actually securities law could be applied to the technology as well. It's mm-hmm. you know similar mm-hmm. stuff. It's not that hard, um, but there's kind of a deer in the headlights effect where we we when there's a new flashy technology, we forget that maybe mm-hmm. our old rules actually do apply. Well, it, it goes back. I remember when that happened. I mentally went back. Planet Money, which is a different podcast. I can say that. Um, did a did a segment on when the U.S. first started creating currency as a country, and each bank had their own currency, mm-hmm. and you could only cash it in at that bank, and it created this huge system of non interoperability, and then to solve that problem, like the fact that there were different currencies, that issue had to be solved, um, and when the the cryptocurrency bubble happened, I remember somebody. I think they tweeted, like, we've never seen this many currencies or different options available to people. And I thought back to that. I'm like, we have. There's always a historic um, analogy for the things that, we're, that are happening today if we can just open our minds up and figure out what we did before. And, uh, you know, another thing in addition to the past that Americans like to ignore is uh, other countries. Um, you know, I'm curious if, if you... Um, you know, you mentioned already the the European regulation. Um, is there kind of a way of thinking in some other international context that you think we should be learning from at this point? Absolutely. Um, I'm going to mention one more podcast just because I think it's really interesting. Um, there's one called Rough Translation, and it takes an issue being debated in the U.S. and looks at it from an international perspective. And in the first podcast they did, it was fake news, and they looked at it from the Ukrainian perspective. And they had been going through this and seeing the impacts of fake news for so long. There are so many lessons to be learned. They're not only in where we were at the time, this was a couple years ago, but what could happen. And I still don't think we've wrapped our heads around how this could play out in the long run if we let misinformation and disinformation continue totally unchecked, um, and what people might come to feel about it. And so we can learn so many different lessons from experiences and approaches from different countries that I don't think that we're opening our minds to because we're very um, us in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, um, uh, uh, you know, and and it's interesting to see uh, at the same time how California is taking a turn, uh, you know, uh, a, um, uh, 
uh, some inspiration from what's been happening in Europe and mm-hmm. and the um, the Europeans had a kind of freer hand maybe to get started because the the companies weren't based in 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 their countries largely and and um, yet they were a large market and they had mm-hmm. power. Um, you know, at the same time, I wonder. You know, every time a new law comes through, um, uh, there's you know, when when the European regulation came through, there were all these emails from every company I'd ever I'd forgotten I'd ever <laughs> signed up for, right? And uh, and the same thing has been happening lately with the California mm-hmm. implementation. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that these is there a danger that these kinds of regulations designed to protect consumers are creating so much overhead for people uh, developing platforms uh, that it's it's uh, raising the bar to entry and actually rewarding some of the big companies because they're the ones who can afford to do all the compliance. If I were to guess, um, with any new regulation, there are growing pains. There's a time when you have to figure out what it means, adapt, change. Um, but instead, let's speculate that 10 years ago, we would have had the California privacy law or a federal privacy law in the U.S. Today, we would have our heads around it the same way we have our heads around financial privacy. <laughs> and it would be just baked into everybody would know when they set up a new company, what they had to do, how to set up. And we, would, it, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. We would have had it then. Um, but there were fewer maybe startups in the tech space at that point. So absolutely, I think we're in the middle of some growing pains right now. I would personally wager that they're not long-term growing pains, that we're going to normalize and standardize around some of these requirements. And to me, that means the faster we can put a federal law in place that's really robust and comprehensive, the quicker we're going to adapt to that. Um, And the longer we take, the more startups are going to come online and then have to re-engineer from the beginning to deal with that. What, what do you think the chances now uh, are of the kind of um, sweeping uh, change that we might need? We're, I would put a wager that we're going to get a federal privacy law. Um, companies want it. Regulators want it. Civil society wants it. I don't think it's a question of if. I think it's a question of what. Um, and there's a lot of overlap and understanding about what it will look like, but there are some really important key differences that nobody's really ready to come together on yet. What, 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 what are some of those? What should people be watching for? The two big ones are going to be um, enforcement. Can I sue a company if they violate my privacy rights under a privacy law? Um, or are only federal agencies or state attorneys generals empowered to do these investigations and bring causes of action. Um, And so that's going to be a big point of divergence. The other one is called preemption. To what degree is a federal law going to prevent states from regulating? And I think a lot of people in the corporate sector are saying not like it has to be one law, no preemption or absolute preemption. States can't regulate and any state laws that exist have to go away. Um, And civil society largely is saying no preemption or very, very limited preemption. Um, If I were to guess, we're going to fall somewhere in the middle. And at some point, we're going to have a conversation about that very, very large gray area. 
Um, I would really love for that to happen sooner rather than later, but I don't think we're in that spot just yet. Now, I think that question of preemption is really interesting because it it po- it, it uh, wraps around that that the question of whether you know the internet is bringing our world together as a kind of common experience mm-hmm. and entity, or whether we're seeing a fragmentation, uh, uh, and and the internet is going to become a kind of a kind of um, you know hodgepodge of jurisdictional. Um, uh, differences where you know very different things are happening in different places. Do you, do you see you know a lot of mm-hmm. um, a lot of do you see the trend as being one toward convergence um, or toward um, toward kind of divergence and regulatory competition and arbitrage and all this stuff? I think there is a there is a trend toward divergence, but there is a growing recognition that convergence is going to be necessary. Um, and I don't think, especially with the preemption issue, that we have to choose one. Um, for example, at my last job, when we were proposing policy solutions, um, we wrote about a bit about the fact that you could have preemption for things that conflict with the federal law, so you don't have conflicting standards between states and the federal government, and maybe even an approach um, where the federal government could step in if states conflict with one another. So if California passes a law and Nevada passes a law and a company can't comply with both because to one, you can't share information if somebody's over 13 and with one, you have to if they're under 15, um, maybe the federal government could step in there. So I think we can really creatively think through making sure that people aren't put in a spot where they just can't do it while still allowing states to innovate. We wouldn't be having this federal discussion if California hadn't passed a law. And states are much faster to react to new technologies than the federal government is. And I think we're going to stagnate if we don't allow a little bit of that innovation to continue, at least. You're listening to Looks Like New. We're speaking with Amy Stepanovich, Executive Director of Silicon Flatirons at CU Boulder. Stick with us and we'll be back in just a moment. This program is brought to you by the KGNU Listener members and by Quish Sustainable Wealth. Good evening. It's The Economy Continues in a moment, followed by Matt Mellick with Highway 322. Here in Boulder, it's partly cloudy with a temperature of 37 degrees. Denver is 34 degrees. Fort Collins, 37 degrees under overcast skies. Tonight will be partly cloudy with lows in the mid-20s. And tomorrow, Friday, a beautiful day, mostly sunny, highs in the low to mid-50s. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Amy Stepanovich. Now, she's um, the new executive director of Silicon Flatirons, a center on technology and law at the University of Colorado Boulder. And th- this is a, a really amazing resource in, in our community and, and beyond. Um, you know, I've, 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 in my time at Boulder, I've 
gone to a lot of events there, just had the chance to um, hear amazing uh, speakers get really frustrated um, uh, hearing uh, uh, what some of our some of the most powerful people in our um, in our tech world are thinking and talking about sometimes um it's just such an amazing showcase of um of the state of things and some of the really cutting edge uh ideas of the future so it's been a an incredible resource it's also you know a place where you know some contend uh for instance uh the term net neutrality was coined at one of these meetings right uh by by uh tim Wu, um a prominent legal scholar and and um, uh, a place where uh, really national discussions uh, take place. Even this month, for instance, uh, Silicon Flatirons hosted a uh, a hearing, a, you know, a federal hearing on tech policy. So it's a place not only where discussions are happening, but where actually the future is being made. Uh, so, so Amy, I'm curious. Um, you know, you're, you're um, uh, uh, succeeding the. Uh, 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 Phil Weiser, who's now Attorney General of Colorado, um, tell us a bit about what kind of vision, what kind of uh, plans you're bringing to your role at Silicon Flatirons. Sure, uh, Silicon Flatirons. You know, this year we're celebrating our 20th anniversary, um, so we've been around for quite some time, um, and we have a, a three-part mission to bring people together around tech policy. So not necessarily to tell people what to think about those issues, but make sure all of the points of view are represented and to move the conversation forward in ways that maybe you can't do um, if you don't have all those people in the room together. Uh, One piece is to support entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, And we like to connect with the local community. Boulder is such an amazing place for innovators, Um, probably one of the most um, forward-thinking places in the country. And so we like to provide them resources. We have an entrepreneurial law clinic that we work quite closely with that is able to provide legal support for startups, which is really wonderful. And then finally, to empower students. This is the next generation of people um, who are going into the field, and we do a lot to help with development, education, um, and onward to make sure that we're putting forward the best possible um, new professionals that we can. And in our home at the law school, I think that we've really had a lot of success in those three areas. Looking ahead, we want to dig in. Um, I want to make sure that we're being more inclusive with both our programming and um, our approach to students, uh, helping more people understand the, the law and policy space and be more international. The internet is international. Tech is international. It doesn't stop at borders. You can't sell iPhones in one state and not sell iPhones in another state, or you could, but it won't. It won't really work. Um, and so we need to be thinking about how what we do here impacts the international community and vice versa. Um, and then double down in um, interdisciplinary work, working with the information school, the engineering school, the business school. Um, tech has all of these different dimensions, and you can't segment yourself off if you want to have a real impact. And so trying to bring the different communities together a lot more is going to be really important to us moving forward. Can you um, uh, say a bit about some of the events that are coming up uh, from February onward? So 
this February, we'll have our annual kind of flagship conference um, where we look for, for themes across the tech space. This year, it's on tech optimism and pessimism. And we have a really great roster of speakers, February 9th and 10th at the law school. To finish the semester, we have um, a few large conferences, one on content and intellectual property, another one on artificial intelligence, and then one on healthcare tech that's going to happen down in Denver. And our, our events, our crash course series, um, we're actually working with, with Nathan to put together um, one of our crash course series on um, looking at one area in the tech space and doing a deep dive for the audience to come in and really understand that specific area. Um, we also have an Entrepreneurs Unplugged series where we bring innovators in the community um, into a room and listen to them talk about their journey um, in that space and, and what that has meant to them. So lots of events moving forward, um, and we're really excited to host people and, and participate in that community. Great. Well, and and uh, thanks to your next conference and in February, we'll have uh uh, in our in next month's episode, Gabriella Coleman, who's a, a scholar of um, you know media and hacker culture, and uh, uh, on this show, so so we're really glad that uh, for all that uh, uh, convening that you're doing, um, and uh, uh, finally for people both in the community uh, here in, in the Front Range and also beyond, uh, how can people follow Silicon Flatirons and what you're doing? What's the best place for them to go to? Sure. Our our events are all posted on social media. Um, we have a, a Twitter account at Silicon Flat Iron. Um, oh, that's so confusing. <laughs> because Twitter has a limit to how many characters you can have in a username. Um, we also, our website, siliconflatirons.org, has all of our events and more information about the center and what we're doing. And it's a good place to go to get information. You can sign up for um, updates and alerts from us um, on those events and They'll end up in your inbox if you're uh, an email first person. So that's an option as well. Amy Stepanovich, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Amy Stepanovich, Executive Director of Silicon Flatirons at CU Boulder, about who really cares about privacy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at cmci.colorado.edu slash medlab. Um, please, if you if you enjoy this show, uh, consider spreading the word about it, uh, posting it on social media, leaving a review wherever you get podcasts. Uh, I'd also love to hear from you with comments, guest ideas. You can reach me at medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us m- next month. Thanks for being with us today.